1: See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.
0: This is ION Veterans Weekend, a roundup of the week's most important stories affecting those who served. Presented by University
2: of Maryland Global Campus.
1: There are nearly 20 million million military military veterans veterans in in the the US. U.S.,
2: each week we focus on their stories
1: powered by connectingvets.com
0: This This is CBS Ion Veterans Ion Veterans. Veterans
1: Welcome
2: to another edition of CBS Ion Veterans I'm Navy veteran Phil Briggs Ion Veterans is a weekly program focused on the men and women who have served our nation in uniform and their families We're powered by connectingvets.com always a great place to find military news veteran news resources and stories about the veteran lifestyle We know Because we're vets ourselves. Now in our next segment, as we like to do, we like to start off the show with some news that affects veterans and some news that uh, is affecting the lives of veterans. And oftentimes when we get into the medical field, there are many things that affect the quality of life of veterans, including how to measure whether or not things are working. And that's what our next guests will discuss with us. From the Henry M. Jackson Foundation for Advancement of Military Medicine, it's a global nonprofit organization created to accelerate progress in military medicine. Now, HJF works to promote military-civilian interchange, and they support the Uniform services at the University of Health Sciences, and they help advance all of Department of Defense research efforts. That's a very long-winded way of saying that their program management from laboratory research and other scientific and administrative program management services empowers researchers to get the resources they need to find the answers for our veterans. And as veterans, we appreciate their work. And joining us here to talk about the Veterans Metrics Initiative is Cynthia Gilman. She's the Senior Vice President of Strategic Initiatives with HJF, and Dr. Daniel Perkins, who is a Professor of Family and Youth Resiliency and Policy at Penn State University. Folks, glad to have you on CBSI on Veterans. Thank you, Phil. Great to be here.
3: Yeah, thanks so much, Phil.
2: Now, I'm not quite sure where to start, so uh, I'll defer to Cynthia first and, and say, share with me a little bit about uh, the Veteran Metrics Initiative.
4: Absolutely. So, the Veteran Metrics Initiative that we shorthand as PBMI is a public-private research study that we initiated up almost eight years ago now when uh, the war was um, very engaged and lots and lots of folks were separating from service and uh, millions and millions of dollars were being expended by the DOD, the VA, and the private sector to help Recently transitioned servicemen and women returned to their civilian lives successfully. But what we found was there was a real knowledge gap and that we did not know how that transition was going for people. We didn't know who was doing well, who would do poorly. And what we really didn't know was of that uh, amount of money being spent to help them, what was working if anything. And so Uh, The Veteran Metrics Initiative came about to try to address that gap.
2: Now, when we talk about veteran transition, uh, you know, I tend to think about my own transition. And when I got out, it was like job search. And for many an MOS, there was that realization that your MOS doesn't directly correlate to a job. And that seemed to be the extent of the veteran transition experience for myself. Dr. Perkins, share with me kind of what you guys are looking at uh, with this program and, and, and drill into some of the details about it.
3: Yeah, thanks so much, Phil. Actually, the way you asked that was perfect. I think uh, part of the challenge is for folks to realize when we talk about veterans transition to look in a much broader way about the well-being of veterans across a bunch of domains. So employment is one of those domains, but their relationships, their social relationships, their health, and also how they're doing, and you know, your basic daily finances and housing and things like that. So in this study, we really looked at their well-being across all those domains and really tried to get a sense as to, as they transition out of military service, what are they making use of in terms of the programs that are available? And then how are they doing across a three-year period of time uh, and each six months, we ask them same questions and some new questions to really understand what their experience is in that transition from um, active duty or from service to their country to civilian status.
2: Now, you're looking at almost 10,000 veterans and checking in over three years every six months. What types of things have you observed and what types of things stand out?
3: The vast majority of veterans are doing excellent. They're doing well, very well, right? And so the the notion of veterans being broken or uh, for employers to take on veterans because it's the right thing to do is is in some ways not actually accurate. What really the message should be is veterans are real assets that can be that can be a part of your uh, company, a part of your community and have a huge positive impact.
2: Cynthia, go ahead. I'm sure you have something that you wanted to share, too, as far as what you've witnessed and what you've
4: seen we are seeing that there are some areas where veterans are struggling. And um, we are seeing relatively high mental and physical health burdens being reported across the the waves, across the three years. Um, Chronic pain, sleep problems, depression, and anxiety are the most commonly reported health conditions. Um, We see that Even though we are seeing pretty high employment rates among the veterans in the study, many are still reporting that they're having some financial challenges. And it suggests to us that there is probably a need for more attention to financial concerns and uh, relating to educating folks on money management, savings, things along those lines. So I think that those are sort of the negative trends that we're seeing. Um, we're also starting to see, and this is the part that I, I personally find most exciting, is that we're identifying cohorts of individuals within the study who may be more prone to having struggles along that uh, transition continuum.
3: Cynthia's point is real, really important, I think. is one of the things we could do is begin to identify folks that are higher risk. I mentioned that early pay grade, but we could also jump into individuals who have had combat exposure as well as had some other trauma in their life. We've been able to assess that and find that those individuals with those two experiences are at much higher risk to be struggling a little bit in terms of the mental health domain. And so if we, if we were to identify them early, and you can do that, With this actual, with the metric we've created, you could do that. And you could actually provide some preventative support right from the get-go so they don't go into a tailspin.
2: The Veterans Metric Initiative can use the data it's gathering to really improve the lives of the men and women who are getting out of the military. Let's take something like resume writing. It can help them create an actual resume that gets them a better job instead of something that they're likely to quit. But Dr. Perkins was quick to point out that it's not just about the first few months after one gets out of the military. The Veterans Metrics Initiative can help show which programs out there that are claiming to help veterans
3: really work. So some of what we've been able to do is to really say to those 44,000 programs out there, actually, there's some things you should do more than, and
4: some things you should do less of. So for instance, we, we reached out to a number of private sector funders to come to the table and help us design the study and that allowed us to know what are the questions they're asking because they want to know what works as well. We know now that resume writing is important but it has to be done through coach, mentor, a classroom environment. The other part that we really want to get across is the veterans can also be looking to see what we're finding. So if somebody wants a job, to be able to show to them, here's what you should be looking for in a program if you want to increase the likelihood of success. And we do have that now available on our website.
2: Now, whether you're an employer or a veteran yourself, if you want more information about how the researchers at the Henry M. Jackson Foundation are using science to help make a veteran transition successful, you can check it all out at hjf.org slash tvmi. Now, up next, we'll hear how science may be finding the answer to help treat PTSD and fight suicide.
1: DNA don't lie. At that point, my PCP could have said, Teresa, I know you said on your post-assessment that you weren't exposed to trauma, that you're good. However, then my biomarkers show that something is not right.
2: That's all ahead when CBS Eye on Veterans returns. Welcome back to CBS Ion Veterans. I'm your host, Navy veteran Phil Briggs. Now, what if there was a simple and chemical test to determine who is going to have a problem with PTSD and who may eventually be at risk for suicide? And what if a patient could receive preventative treatment for all this long before any problems actually started? Well, it's not science fiction, but it's research that's currently being done. And to learn more about it, I recently spoke with Sharissa Jackson, the chief medical officer for Amvets and researcher and founder of True Genomics, Yusef Enriquez.
1: Hey, Phil. How are you? Thanks for having me today.
2: Hey, Phil. Doing well. It's Yusef
5: Enriquez. Thanks for having
2: me. Let's start here because that lead says a lot. Share with me a little bit about what True Genomics does.
5: Uh, Yes. True Genomics is a precision genomics company developing uh, innovative solutions to help uh, reduce uh, PTSD and other suicide-related casualties over the next uh, 20 years. Uh, pretty much what we, um, True Genomics was started uh, as my kid's aftercare provider. Took his life um, in 2012, which started this passion of mine to understand how trauma affects us at a genetic level. And uh, that uh, passion took me through across the world, um, researching with well-renowned researchers in the PTSD field around MTBI and PTSD. And uh, we were able to come up with a genetic profile that looks at genes that are affected through trauma. And we're now able to measure that through the level of cortisol that your body develops while going through a traumatic
2: episode. Now that's some research with a real heartfelt inspiration. And I can't wait to drill into it a little bit deeper with you in just a few minutes. But first, I want to ask AMVETS Chief Medical Officer, Sharissa Jackson, how did it come to be that a veteran service organization aligned with a genetic research company?
1: It's interesting how Yusuf and I actually um, got to work on this project together. I had seen um, Yusuf post a LinkedIn uh, message about using biomarkers for PTSD. And for someone like myself who does work in Africa with cervical cancer and biomarkers, I was immediately drawn to that article, immediately drawn to him. And so we connected. And I'll never forget that conversation we had at, at Starbucks. It was like almost two hours talking about fire markers PTSD and he and I just really connected from there and it was immediate that I called and that executives and like look we have to connect with true genomics this is groundbreaking and we really started working from there
2: I read from the press release here an interesting quote from you Yusuf and it says DNA doesn't lie talk to me about (laughs) how the answer within the suicide solution here could be the science of our DNA
5: Absolutely, uh, and again, uh, you know, this is just one solution, as, as Charisa mentioned, um, and we're still um, tackling it. It's going to take a village, and so in no way are we saying this is the um, one size fit all solution. But what we, are, I being a medic and Charisa being a nurse in in, in the core, um, we uh, definitely wanted to look at the environmental factors and what's a better place to start than your DNA. Um, That's the genes that you were born with. And over time, uh, it's been about 15 years since the uh, human genome was mapped for about three billion dollars And science and innovation has caught up where we now have science to understand different different genes in the body that are dysregulated by that high uh, they call fight or flight when we were in the military, that releases high levels of cortisol, we now are able to track that to where those particular hormones go and the genes that they're directly associated with. So when I made the comment about DNA doesn't lie, that's pretty much the roadmap of your body and, um, and where you have the history of, of what your body has gone through, whether it's environmental or trauma, uh, we're now able to identify genes in the body that are dysregulated by certain elements, um, whether it's um, uh, um, burn pits or it's trauma.
1: And and Phil, if I can just piggyback off what you just said, um, I too agree that DNA doesn't lie because, you know, I went to Iraq in 2005, again in 2006, and then they asked me to go to Afghanistan in 2011. When I went to Iraq in 2005, came back, I knew something was wrong, right? And I knew that I was exposed to a lot of things that I saw as a combat nurse. I knew I had had PTSD. I knew it. I had treated soldiers with it. However, on our assessment that we all come back and do the post-assessment, I said I was totally fine. I said I was good, I didn't need any mental health resources, I didn't need to talk to anybody, I was good. Went back to my normal life, at least I thought my normal life, and I dealt with PTSD from 2005 until 2012 when I had my first PTSD break. So imagine if this test, um, if I had taken this test back in 2005 when I came back and the biomarkers showed that I had been exposed to trauma. DNA don't lie. At that point, my PCP could have said, Teresa, I know you said on your post-assessment that you weren't exposed to trauma, that you're good. However, then my biomarkers show that something is not right. Let's talk about it. So with that being said, I believe DNA doesn't lie. When you provide early detection with a test like this, early intervention, having that discussion with your PCP, it saves lives. It changes things dramatically. And if had that been done for me, I think I would have been in a better situation in 2012 when I had my PTSD break.
2: And we would test this with like a blood test or something, right? That's absolutely
5: correct. And and that's where the science has evolved and the innovation comes. The platform that we're using now it's called uh, next gen sequencing. And essentially how it works is just like how you go to the doctor to get get your uh, CBC. Uh, blood levels drawn for your cholesterol and, and, and other proteins and sodium, this would be a blood draw. Our goal is to individuals that's leaving the military or post-combat deployment to start looking at the epigenetic changes that may be affecting that veteran or soldier at the time and start looking at this, as Sharisa as said, early detection, early prevention, not waiting for that soldier to come to us after they've tried multiple other regimen and, and cocktails, but really being proactive and starting identifying and being a medic and a nurse on the phone, it, you can kind of see our thinking aligned that so we're, we're, we're on early detection and being proactive instead of reactive.
2: Exactly. Mm, amazing. And what's cool about the science being involved is that it takes us out the equation because it seems like the human condition you know anything we get involved with we tend to mitigate and we change the outcome you know how you doing sergeant hey i'm doing fine well no technically sergeant you're not probably (laughs) doing fine you just said you're doing fine because you don't want to be here or you know you'd rather just be getting on with your day and uh humans are so imperfect and science is just so perfect yeah absolutely and
5: also it also destigmatizes as well as she used to mention um, yeah. you know, I, I multiple women veterans might've had the same situation or went through the same thing Charissa did and you know, to know that it's not just you and it's not just, you know, you being considered weak is a, is a win because now if this is a genetic component, just as being, if you're colorblind, you have a, another ailment or disease, you have some more objectivity to it instead of some of the bias and subjectivity that's currently riddled with the current survey testing that we're being, um, that's being administered right
1: now. Mm. Let me tell you. I mean, those nurses that was with me in 2005, you know, some have taken their lives. Some just not into the nursing career field anymore. A lot of those nurses that was with me in 2005 didn't come back again in 2006. And I know, had this been in place. It would have given these nurses answers because like you just said it's the stigma of PPS, right? You don't want to go and tell anybody that you're weak. We're officers. So how dare we go to our commander and say, oh, I can't go back again because, you know, I'm having some mental health issues. So to know that um, this would have been a way to give answers to those nurses who have taken their lives and are still suffering with um, PTSD and were suffering back then, even though we were taking care of soldiers who had it, but no one was talking about it, this would have been a way to start that conversation and provide a, 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 a resource as well as a source for what do we do next, you know, what do we talk to this veteran about, what intervention do we do we need to put in place should we send her back again right yeah. and if, if these things were put in place i think um a lot of nurses um would be healthier now and I, I believe a lot of veterans would definitely be healthy now
2: fighting suicide through science couldn't sound better and i'm so glad that we are able mm-hmm. to do this led of course by the leadership of amvets charissa jackson chief medical executive i thank you for your time
1: thank you so much Philer. appreciate it so much
2: and Yousef Henriquez, Army Veteran and Founder and Chief Innovation Officer of True Genomics. Thank you for uh, saddling up the science and uh, helping us find some breakthroughs, man. Really appreciate it.
5: Thank you as well, so and appreciate the um, connecting vets uh, sharing our story.
2: Now we'll go from that which can be explained by science to something that really can't be explained at all. The story of the Navy SEAL who was shot 27 times and survived is next on CBS Eye on Veterans. Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm your host, Navy veteran Phil Briggs. Now this next story is going to blow your mind. In fact, I think of all the guests I've had, former Navy SEAL Mike Day is one of the few that's living proof that miracles can happen. This is the description of his new book, Perfectly Wounded. On what would be his final combat mission as a Navy SEAL, Senior Chief Mike Day was shot at close range by four enemy fighters and absorbed a grenade blast. He was shot 27 times. Despite being wounded, Mike was able to neutralize all four enemy combatants, secure two prisoners, rescue six women and children, and evacuate to a waiting helicopter. But more than just a story of combat, his book and the conversation you're about to hear was something that literally changed the way I look at life. Senior, how are you? I'm doing awesome. Man, good to talk to you. And as we heard in the intro there, the highlight reel, if you will, uh, we're getting ready to hear one incredible story. First, I want to get to know a little bit more about Mike Day, because from my research, I understand you don't have a superhero cape. You weren't born with a silver spoon and you were no altar boy. Tell me about growing up, man. I think, um,
6: my childhood is a, uh, pretty common, uh, you know, there might have been guys that had to deal with worse, uh, and guys that have dealt with less, uh, as far as uh, being traumatized by by our parents, but I grew up in a very violent household. Um, my father was an alcoholic. Uh, by the age twelve, he had been medically retired uh, from the Navy with schizophrenia. So it was it was very hectic, chaotic. Uh, I didn't understand that it wasn't normal until you know years later. I I thought everybody's house was like mine. Um, I'm I'm more amazed at the guys that actually grow up in a house. I had good parents, uh, were nurtured, were taught how, how to do things the right way, and then make it through Buds. I was able to make it through Buds and the SEAL teams because my childhood was so was so difficult that I had to figure out as a child how to get through that. SEAL teams was just easy.
2: Wow. And I think that speaks to something that we see, as I'd said, from a lot of the warfighter stories, is that like there's something you can take from that, and that trauma... And drama, for that matter, isn't unique to the military experience. Although your guys' lives kind of demonstrate a, a, a specific example about how one can get through trauma, uh, you'd experienced it before even coming into the military. Thus, some of the hardest, most elite training in the military didn't seem that difficult to you because you'd been through screaming, yelling, DIs, and you'd been through, you know, uh, some frightful situations already. So
6: I was, I was happy they didn't beat me up like my father did. I was, I was expecting it. <laughs>
2: You certainly made it through, became a SEAL, uh, survived deployments, uh, we're talking Kosovo, Philippines, Middle East, um, not so much action on the first desert storm, but as uh, you rounded out and became kind of the mature member of the SEAL teams there, um, we'll kind of speed towards April of 2007 and talk about that turnover deployment uh, from what I've learned Turnover deployments, kind of, uh, you guys are on your way out. There's a new team sort of coming in. So you guys are finding the battle rhythm and helping the incoming guys uh, go on some missions with you. And uh, on that night in April 2007, you're hunting an Al Qaeda cell that had been taking out rescue helicopters. Um, You get dropped a few miles away from kind of the target area there. Take me through that night.
6: Okay. Uh, Thanks for getting me to there. I I go off on tangents. You have to pull them back sometimes. (laughs) We get on the ground and. We have a, a target package where we're going to hit five buildings. And on the patrol into the into the target area, uh, overhead asset was telling us they're hearing chatter from bad guys on the ground. Don't doesn't know if they're actually talking about us, but they're aware of somebody else. But there's three other um, operations going on in the near vicinity. Uh, so we don't know where it's coming from. We, we changed uh, the target package from hitting five buildings to just one, uh, the one primary one. Uh, we get up to that target building, and we breach the door, have to come back out, uh, go into uh, another entry. And I'm the one that popped that door open. That opened up into a small foyer that had two doors in it with nothing in it but uh, a lantern. So I, uh, I make a simultaneous room entry uh, with Clark. He goes into the door to the on the back wall, and I go through the door on the left. And as I'm coming off my pivot foot, I start getting shot. Everything slows down to frame by frame, and I lose my rifle. I have a complete conversation with myself. Everything's moving frame by frame. I transition to my my, my sidearm as I'm falling towards the ground. I'm falling forward. You know, in the movies, they, they show guys getting shot, and they're blowing them backwards, uh, which did happen to one person. It did save his life. I, I'll explain that in a bit. But as soon as I got in the room, they opened up on me before I even came off my pivot foot. So I got my right foot in the door. Uh, I cleared the right wall. Uh, went down the left wall. There was a guy down that wall shooting at me. I pulled out my pistol, put about five, six rounds in that guy, watched him die, you know, frame by frame. So three to five seconds from the time I entered that door to the time I hit that ground, it felt like minutes to me. I watched him die, hit the ground. I landed right next to him. Uh, The guy in the center of the room, and this is a small room. This is like 12 by 12. It's a square room, somewhere between 12 by 12 and 15 by 15. uh, Pretty small. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize it at the time. And I didn't even know a grenade had gone off in the room until we did an after action report months later. But he had pulled the pin on a grenade and he was trying to run out of the room and into the hallway on the guys uh, on the rest of the train. And I shot him in the head and he fell to his knees and blew up and knocked me out. So this is usually. a good time to explain what happened behind me. Uh, so when we enter a room, it's either a two man or four man room entry. And you go in left, right, left, right, left, right for a four man. So behind me, that was my number two guy got shot in the chest and it hit his body armor and knocked him out of the room. That was an Iraqi scout. And the third guy who was also an Iraqi scout got shot in the chest and penetrated his body armor and killed him. And he, he died right there in the doorway. Mm. Clark um, that went into the other the other room. A bullet passed through two doorways and hit him in the back of the, and hit him in the back of the neck, and uh, he wound up uh, dying on target that night. So I'm on the ground unconscious right now, and guys are still trying to get in the room. No SEALs actually saw me go into the room. Only Iraqi scouts did. So when they tried to get in the room and there were still two guys sawing up the door jam with AKs, they decided we're not going in there. And they called for status over the radio. Well, I'm unconscious. I couldn't respond. I couldn't respond responded anyway because um, I'd later find out that my radio is destroyed. So they decide they're going to leave. They get a good status report. Everybody's outside and trying to do a running head count. And they were going to use an aircraft to uh, pull up the target. But we have standard operating procedures that we can't drop bombs. Uh, And use call for fire if we don't have a full headcount. We don't know where everybody is. So they're trying to get that together.
2: Now, before they do it, though, they got to get that report. And, of course, at this time, you're still in that room. Guys are still laying down fire. So the team's actually backing out uh, from the building. And there you are under a window laying there after a grenade's gone off or a frag. And you're out cold.
6: Well, I'm, I'm waking up at this point. So, when I wake up, the guys have already decided they're going to pull back and just blow it up. Um, I wake up and I look across the room and see two guys with AK 47 shooting over top of me at the guys leaving. Uh, one other guy got shot in the arm at this point. And I hate to admit it, but when I first saw that, I was like, man, maybe I should just play possum and wait till they're done and I can just sneak out of here. Uh, it wasn't a thought that lasted for too long before I started re engaging them. So, I put, like, five or six rounds into the first dude, uh, shot a couple of rounds at the second guy with a grenade, and this is a 15-round magazine. So I wake up, the pistol's still in my hand. I reengage him. I run that dry. And I don't think they know I'm shooting them at, at this point. I do a magazine change, start shooting again, and they realize that I'm shooting at them. So they stop shooting through the window, re- redirect their fire at me, And some pretty amazing stuff happened here. Had an AK round, hit the foot of the magazine, and it blew the hand grips off the pistol and caused it to malfunction. So I had to clear a malfunction in a drill, what we call tap-rack bang.
2: Now stick around, because when we return, we'll hear how retired Navy SEAL Mike Day survived that deadly combat mission.
6: My hand grips were scattered. I could feel the springs in my hand. And I remember the look of surprise on their face when they realized it was me that was shooting.
2: That's ahead when CBS Ion Veterans returns. Welcome back to CBS Ion Veterans. I'm your host, Navy veteran Phil Briggs. Now in our last segment, we heard retired Navy SEAL Mike Day talk about his new book, Perfectly Wounded. In it, he described a combat mission where he was shot 27 times and absorbed a grenade blast. Yeah, and lived to tell about it. We'll jump back into the part of our interview where he's talking about coming to, and realizing he's in a room where terrorists are shooting at his team members. What happened next is nothing short of a miracle.
6: I don't think they know I'm shooting them at this point. I do a magazine change, start shooting again, and they realize that I'm shooting at them. So they stop shooting through the window, redirect their fire at me, and some pretty amazing stuff happened here. Had an AK round, hit the foot of the magazine, and it blew the hand grips off the pistol and caused it to malfunction. So I had to clear a malfunction and a drill, what we call tap, rack, bang. You hit the bottom of the magazine to make sure it's seated. you work the slide, and then you pull the trigger. That's that's a malfunction drill. And if it hadn't worked, and it shouldn't have worked because my hand grips were shattered, I could feel the springs in my hand. But it worked, and I, I wound up killing both of those guys. But I think the reason why they, they were so surprised, and I remember the look of surprise on their face when they realized it was me that was shooting, was because when I was unconscious, I think they took the pistol and they stubbed it in my body armor and shot me in the back twice. The reason why I think that is because there's no holes in my body armor that line up with holes in my back. So the, the rounds had to get in my body armor somehow. And I got shot twice in the butt. Well, the first guy I killed was up against the wall. I landed up against him next to him on my side, on my left side. So somebody had to stand over top of me to shoot me. Um, just got uh, that bullet cut out last year. I had a bullet that they left in my hip that migrated uh over my hip all the way to my stomach fat and i had some friends cut that out that bullet was in me for quite a bit
2: that's amazing um one because i'm glad to hear stomach fat does come in handy sometimes thank you very much senior i'm gonna uh, covet mine from here forward and two i heard you on again marcus Luttrell and them's podcast um is that the one you wear around your neck
6: yeah, <laughs> uh, 9 no round. Of course you I've also the, the way I, I got it. the idea is when the guys collected up all my body armor, an AK round fell out of the not a round, just a just a lead fell out of my body armor, and it has the rifling on it. You can see the rifling, and that's for people that don't know. It's inside a barrel are, are grooves that mm-hmm. make the bullet spin to make it, keep it stable. And when when a piece of lead goes through that, it actually those grooves get engraved into the into the piece of lead that comes out. And you can see that. So that's how we know the bullet was actually shot. But it fell out of my body armor and it's not deformed at all, except for it's flattened on one side. So inside of ten feet, I get hit with an AK, and it doesn't deform around at all. It, it should have blown blown apart.
3: Mm.
2: I've heard you say in other interviews that it was like the matrix and, and, and just a minute ago, you said kind of like frame by frame mental recall. Cool. That is an interesting thing that you can do that. I think maybe all humans could do if we knew to do it, it must stem from some of the traumas that you've survived. And I hate to be so simple and call it the matrix mode or like Neo, but your uncanny ability to kind of like slow some things down in your mind things that took place in a millisecond turn into minutes in your mind explain kind of how that feels
6: well i'm I'm trying to pop my computer open there's actually a scientific term for it and i've been doing it ever since i was a kid now i was always kind of jumping my bike over stuff that i shouldn't climbing up trees and falling out of trees and so it's been happening to me since i was since i was a kid and in the military uh, when i was on the navy parachute team there was plenty of times where i'd get into a parachute wrap because we do canopy relative work, so a lot of times, you know, you hit wind shears and parachutes don't act the way they're supposed to, and things start happening really fast. Uh, but every time that happened, time also slowed down for me, where I didn't feel like I was stressed to the point where I didn't have enough time to get something done. I always felt like I had enough time to get it done. It, wasn't, it didn't feel like real time. Baseball players that can hit a 95-mile-an-hour fastball, there are our guys. Uh, that stay they they are able to do it a small percentage of people can do that very hard but the guys that can stay it's all slow motion i can see the ball spin i can count the threads on the ball i like to believe that too i think if one human being can do it that means anybody can do it and i like to think that the world's a lot more magical than than we give uh give it credit for and i think the human being's a lot more powerful being than than we know we are
2: so cool so cool. I'll stop you right there because I, I've also interviewed some other guys, uh, SEAL team guys and other special operations folks um, that are able to kind of, they cha- they take fear and they sort of channel it in a direction. And at all times during your training, there were moments when you guys were really scared. You know, I think of the, uh, what is it, the dunk tank there, the swimming pool exercise, where they're trying to tie your uh, your scuba gear up and, and and prohibit you from breathing. And you have to be able to slow some situations down in your mind Go through your checklist carefully and calmly so you're not freaking out in the moment. You're not using all that extra energy and the fear is just driving you and you're acting all wild and arms flailing, but you are internalizing it, taking that real fear of death and moving it and using the energy in a different way. And I think that that's just so incredible when I hear that story of you saying, oh, bullets are whizzing by and I can almost like feel the vapor trails going by my head or uh you know impacting parts of my body and that's just you being able to channel that fear that stress that anxiety amazing stuff
6: i like to tell people the only difference between feels and most other people is that it's not that they're fearless they they have fear but they do it anyway um but when you get to the point where like in that instance you can feel fear before going in or a little anxiety uh, before you jump out of a plane but you get into that parachute wrap, that fear is gone because it's it's useless at that point, and you got to be in the moment. And when something really bad's happening, it does put you in that moment. It makes you forget everything else because you're so focused on doing what you've got to do to survive. You know that fight or flight. I think you can train it, but fear drives that fight or flight, and what you do with it is, is a matter of training. Now you see a. I see a lot of reports on people that get shot, you know, out in the street. And one of the more common places to get shot is people putting their hands out and they get shot in the palms because their startle flinch is to cover and and not be aggressive. So a lot of people, when somebody throws a gun in their face, they put their hands up as opposed to, well, I'm going to get shot anyway. I might as well go after this guy and do what I can.
2: Now, as our time on the radio runs out, the interview continued for about an hour. And I'll put the full-length one up at ConnectingVets.com in the audio section under CBS Eye on Veterans. But I want to leave you this week with Mike's words about why the book is called Perfectly Wounded.
6: Kind of the description of my life. I mean, we're all going to suffer trauma. No one, no one gets out, gets through this whole uh, lifetime without being traumatized. And those are wounds. They're either going to push you one direction or the other. It's either going to build resiliency or it's going to take it away from you. For me, it's just... built my resiliency.
2: And it's veterans like Senior Chief Mike Day and stories like Perfectly Wounded that will hopefully instill some resiliency in us all. I'm Phil Briggs, and I'll talk to you again of CBS Eye on Veterans. Eye on Veterans Weekend has been presented by University of Maryland Global Campus. Choose from 90-plus programs and specializations to accelerate your military or civilian career. And find out how our dedicated military and veteran advisors can help you navigate
0: your benefits to save you time and money. University of Maryland Global Campus. Find out how we're made for you. Visit umgc.edu.
1: Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most-watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.
0: The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true.
4: I am just praying to God,